Welcome. My name's Nick Bisley, uh, and I'm the Executive Director of La Trobe Asia, and I'd like to welcome you to uh, a joint panel discussion about Australia-India relations co-hosted by ourselves, La Trobe Asia, and the Australia-India Institute. Uh, La Trobe Asia was established in 2014 to lead my university's academic engagement with Asia, and was informed by the view that universities have a crucial role to play to help Australia navigate a world increasingly shaped by Asia's states and societies. A key part of that role is to influence public debate about the epochal changes occurring in our region. Reflecting our long-term focus on India, La Trobe was a foundation partner of the Australia-India Institute when it was established in 2008, and we remain the only university outside Canberra to teach Hindi. Both the AII and La Trobe are based in Melbourne, but we both see our purpose as national. And thus, it is fitting that our first joint event outside of Victoria is held here in the nation's capital. As you're all aware, in 2014 was a remarkable year in Australia-India relations, quite probably the best year in the relationship's history, bookended by the reciprocal head of government visits in which the close personal relationship between Prime Ministers Modi and Abbott was firmly on display. At last, it seemed we we are, or were, in a position to be able to realise that relationship's potential. The many interests and values shared between Delhi and Canberra could finally be the foundation for a great and lasting partnership. As the previous head of AII, Professor Amitabh Mathu, was fond of saying, this is a relationship whose time has come. Yet, below the surface, things remain challenging. Bilateral trade has plateaued, Australian business remains leery of India, there is much to be done to turn the neat soundbite of an Indo-Pacific strategic arc into an actually existing strategic framework. India's priorities remain its troublesome neighbourhood, while our focus continues to be overwhelmingly to the Straits of Malacca's east. The purpose of today's panel is to bring together three of Australia's preeminent experts on India to discuss the state of the relationship. The aim is to think through how we got to 2014, the challenges in maintaining the relationship, to think a little bit about where it is likely to go, where it ought to go, and what we need to do differently to ensure the latent possibilities of Indo-Australian cooperation, such as they are, can be realised. I'm extremely pleased to have been able to gather such an outstanding panel to lead our discussion today. I'll briefly introduce them. Um, They will then speak for about 10 minutes, and I will be Modi-like doctrinaire in terms of enforcing 10 minutes so that we can maximise the time we have for Q&A and discussion. Um, To my right is Dr Meg Gurry. Uh, Meg embodies the partnership between La Trobe University and AII in that she is an honorary research fellow of La Trobe Asia and a fellow of the Australia India Institute. More importantly, uh, Meg is the author of Australia and India Mapping the Journey, published last year, uh, sorry, earlier this year by Melbourne University Press. Um, It is easily the most comprehensive and thorough study of the Australia-India relationship published to date. On my left... um, John McCarthy uh, has many roles. I'll only mention some of them. Uh, among them, he is, and perhaps most importantly, given my current, one of my current roles, he is the president of the Australia Institute of International Affairs, uh, which publishes the journal I edit, the Australian Journal of International Affairs. He's the chair of the Australia India Council and chair of the advisory board of the Griffith Asia, Asia Institute. Uh, he has had a long and distinguished career in the foreign service, including appointments as ambassador to Vietnam, Mexico, Thailand, the United States, Indonesia, Japan, draw breath, and High Commissioner to India, which is most pertinent to today's discussion. 
finally, on the far left, although that doesn't say anything about his politics, uh, although from your perspective he's on the right, so perhaps it does. Uh, Ian Hall is Professor of International Relations at Griffith University and Australia's most authoritative scholar on Indian foreign policy. Uh, he edited Engaging India, published by Georgetown University Press in 2014, and is currently researching the evolution of India's international thought uh, through a res- uh, in a large research project funded by the Australian Research Council. That's it from me. I'll turn to the panel, who will literally speak in order, and then we'll have our discussions. Thank you, Nick. Uh, My task today is to look at the challenges that the Australia-India relationship has faced in the past. Now, at one level, this is not very difficult, because as far as the big three bilateral building blocks are concerned, trade, security, and people-to-people links, up until the 2000s, the early 2000s, somewhere around then, there simply wasn't enough meat on the bone. But there is more to it than this. If we're going to make sense of the past, and indeed if we're going to make sense of how Australia positions itself in this region and in the wide world, we must explore that it wasn't just the limited trade opportunities nor the lack of a shared strategic vision, though undoubtedly they were central, but it wasn't the only story. They were not the only things that kept the two countries, have kept the two countries in each other's B-team. There was one other major problem in the relationship right from the beginning, and that is the issue of image and perception. And in my research in the archives and elsewhere, I found very early on that these two negative images of Australia proved very difficult to shift in the Australia-India story. I will touch on them briefly. First of all, Number one is race. Now, in 1944, right at the beginning, at the opening of Australia's first mission in India, High Commissioner Ivan Mackay noted that Australia was practically unknown, except for two things, Donald Bradman and the White Australia policy. Now, I have hundreds of similar examples from the decades to follow which reveal just how profoundly challenging Australia's immigration policy was to bilateral development. Every High Commissioner right up until the 70s, complained about it. Well, okay, that was then, you might say, a long time ago. But let's fast forward nearly 70 years. In 2013, I listened to Peter Varghese, surely doesn't need to be introduced to this audience, I listened to Peter Varghese give an address to the Australia India Institute. He had arrived in India as High Commissioner in 2009, following on John, at the time of the Indian student crisis in Australia. And in this speech, he told us how extraordinary, his word, it was that he found he had to explain to Indians that Australia was a multiracial society and has been since the 1970s. He described his sense of discovering what he called a time warp in our perceptions of each other. Now, we all remember the angry response of the Indian media at the time of the student assaults and the accusations of Australian racism. Hence, it's not all that far-fetched to draw a line from the white Australia policy of the 40s through the decades in between and end up in 2009 where, as Peter Varghese put it, Indians tended to believe, tend to believe the worst of Australians on the question of race. The second negative image that I want to refer to is Australia's subservience, perceived subservience to the United States. Australia was seen, in Jahawal Nehru's words, as a stooge, an American stooge. In the 1990s, I was very privileged to interview the very eminent Sir Arthur Tang. Tang believed very strongly that Australia's relations with the United States 
caused profound suspicion and weariness in India. It robbed us, he felt, of the capacity to be an independent voice in the recently decolonised world which we were part of with India. Sir Arthur Tang was High Commissioner in New Delhi in the 60s. He told me this little anecdote, that he would occasionally cross paths with the politically powerful, close Nehru confidant, the most formidable Krishna Menon. I'm sure he needs no explanation either. And Menon would invariably greet him with the words, well, well, good morning, Sir Arthur. So what has Australia done for the Americans today? I have found plenty of evidence in the archives that this was emblematic of how Australia was widely seen. Another one of my favourite insights came from Peter Hayden, High Commissioner to India in the 50s, who wrote how frustrating it was that Australia was seen in India as having, quote, no real personality of our own, where copies of the UK domestically and the US in foreign affairs. So what did all this negativity mean? Well, the images contributed to a level of mutual comprehension that seems to underpin the bilateral relationship. They led Indians to feel that Australia tilted to Pakistan, an understandable perspective from India's part, principally because it was true, and a source of frustration to our diplomats in New Delhi who felt the tilt stifled, Arthur Tang's words, stifled the development of good policy with India. Now, there was a shift away from this tilt in 1971 at the time of the India-Pakistan War when Australia did find an independent voice and adopted a position at odds with that of the United States. But to find out more about that, we're going to have to wait a few months for Rick Smith's paper, which is going to be published in a few months' time. He was in New Delhi at the time and he's going to have a lot more to say about that point. So what were we doing about these negative images? Not much. We had a defence policy, which was all about alliances with Anglo powers. We had a racially discriminatory immigration policy. There was little about engagement with Asia, which was done for reasons other than those driven by the Cold War. As Alan Gingell, also here present, has pointed out, and I'm deeply grateful to Alan for this comment because I use it widely, Alan wrote in, in fact, the Australian Journal of International Affairs, he wrote, we had a security policy well before we had a foreign policy. Menzies himself was not interested in India, nor in most other parts of Asia. This is a claim not liked by coalition leaders, past and very much present, who argued that it was the Menzies government who discovered Asia. But many diplomats of that era have affirmed that Menzies was not, not comfortable in Asia, not comfortable with Asian leaders, and certainly not comfortable with Indian Prime Minister Chahawal Nehru. What struck me most about this era was how the relationship, the bilateral relationship, sagged and seemed to flounder under the weight of these negative images. Even once the Menzies era was over and the white Australia was, as Gough liked to say, dead and buried, Australian leaders, and I am thinking here of Whitlam and Fraser, found it hard to get clear air and to sustain a new narrative of positive engagement. And this was not without trying on both their parts as far as India was concerned. So does the legacy endure? It's true that Hawke and Keating, the Hawke and Keating government's redrew the map. Their recasting of Australia as an Asia-Pacific power was ambitious as it was visionary. With Gareth Evans, Hawke and Keating changed the language of regional engagement. 
But the problem for Australia and India was that their big APEC picture excluded India. However, decades later, the Asia-Pacific is now the Indo-Pacific, and India and Australia share the same map. John Howard made a very successful trip to India in 2006 when John here was High Commissioner. I'm hoping he's going to talk about that. This may be seen as a turning point in the relationship, the transformational moment when converging trade and strategic policy settings began to fall into place. Importantly, the 400,000 strong Indian diaspora in Australia can only be a positive force for change. But image-wise, there is still a way to go. In 2014, at, when Narendra Modi visited Australia, he said to the Australian Parliament that Australia has always been seen as a distant land at the southern edge of the world. Now, I don't know about you, but this doesn't smack to me of Australia being all that strategically consequential. And when you couple that view with the Indian response to the Indian student attacks, this sounds as if, to me, as if there is still an image problem that hasn't quite gone away. One final word. For those of you who have read my book, I don't want to seem as if I've written some hagiography about Australian diplomats, though as appealing as that might seem in this current audience. However, I was constantly struck with their penetrating insights into how Australia should be positioning itself in the region. They were Australian pioneers in Asia. They had the ringside seats. They had the, as they still do, the insider's perspective. My belief is that we need to hear them more, and I'd like to see somehow a mechanism workplace, a mechanism worked out how the work of these commissioners, high commissioners, diplomats, ambassadors, how their reflections can reach a much wider audience than just me foraging away in the dusty archives just around the corner. Thank you. That's it. <laughs> Was I ten minutes? Thank you. Thank you, Meg. A picture of timeliness. In fact, you have. A at 72 seconds short, which can be spent evenly by your, uh, by your successes as they see fit. Now, pass on now to John. Well, thanks. First, I'd like to acknowledge my old colleagues here, uh, Alan, Rick, Rob, Darren. Great to see you here. And uh, they've all, in different ways, had a lot to do with the relationship with India. Two of them as high commissioners there. And uh, I want to say that first. Look, uh, I, I think your remarks, Meg, were first rate, and there's nothing really that I would take issue with in those. I'll just, you know, just, I think, try and uh, make a few points, a few reflections on my time in, in India and, and what I see as some of the issues still. Look, from, uh, I'd first of all make the point that I think the turning point in the relationship with India was probably Howard's visit in 2006. I think, you know, for about six years before that, uh, Australia had become increasingly aware of the, uh, of the economic potential for India and the fact that India was indeed becoming finally a major power. Uh, but there were doubts, uh, there were problems in 2002 with the nuclear issue between uh, India and Pakistan, uh, our reactions to that, which were, I'd, I'd say, less than tactful. Uh, and it was really only in 2006, I think, when Howard came and when he realised that uh, India was uh, on the rise, that our uranium policy, which was seen in India as the big impediment to uh, improving our overall relationship, that policy should be changed. 
And I remember he made the comment, reflecting on it, and I think by that time my view is Howard you know, accumulated quite a lot of wisdom about the region. He didn't start too well, but by then he was, I think, pretty solid. And he made the comment, just uh, look uh, in the car. If we're uh, selling uh, uranium to, in, uh, to China under safeguards, what is the average Australian going to say? Uh, that we should still... Uh, not sell uranium to India? What's the sort of overall view of the man in the street? And Howard was very good at these sorts of these sorts of things. And he came to the view that, you know, quite simply, there should be no impediment to our selling uranium to India. And he made the shift. The shift was later reversed by Rudd and then reversed back again by Gillard. But that was, I think, the turning point. It wasn't just uranium, but uranium was, of course, symbolic. By that time, also the economic relationship had shifted. Um, when I, and there's nothing to do with me, <laughs> when I arrived in 2004, uh, India was our 14th biggest export market. Three years later, it was our seventh biggest export market. And now, as I understand it, it's our fifth biggest export market. And that brings me, I suppose, to my, my second point, and that is that um, in my experience, the one factor that has given us a seat at the top table with a number of countries in the region is resources. That's certainly the case with Japan, where I have personal experience. It is my view about China, and it's certainly the case with India, where I have personal experience. Uh, If it weren't for the importance of our resources trade with those three countries, I don't think we would have the same uh, locus standi in the region as we do. The second factor, which became more and more apparent during my time uh, in India, and of course during Peter Varghese's time and, uh, and also now, is the importance of the educational relationship. And uh, education is our second biggest export to India. It has a troubled past, as we all know, but those are the two areas economically. Then after that, you know, comes copper, gold, and so on. But, uh, you know, those are really the, the important issues. The third factor which came into play when I was there was uh, increasing interest in the security relationship with Australia. And I don't want to uh, detract from uh, the significance of the reputation of our armed services in India. I think it's actually very good. But the major factor was, of course, India's stance was changing, and it was changing because of the rise of China and as it moved away from its linkages with the Soviet Union. And uh, because of that... um, there was uh, increased interest, of course, in a closer relationship with the United States. And again, this was really epitomized by the nuclear deal, and which took place, I think it was 2000, it was finalized about 2008 from memory. But again, uh, that was where, you know, where the Indians began to see Australia as a, a partner of the United States and hence uh, relevant in terms of their own security interests in the Indian Ocean. And so that too changed and it's continued to change. Now, I'd make one point here, uh, which, you know, is a personal view of mine, it's shared by some, not everybody though, and it's this. Um, The Indians 
uh, have welcomed the security approach that we take and the close proximity in security terms of our relationship with the United States. I mean, some would say that there is no daylight at all between our security, security approach and that of the United States to our north. Now, I think that's actually quite convenient to India and it's quite convenient to Japan. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean, however, that they hold us in huge respect. Uh, my sense is that because they see us as walking in lockstep with the United States, uh, they have really come to a view that we don't have an independent approach on security. I think I'm right on that. There will be many who would dispute it, particularly in the uh, president, the present sort of apparat in Canberra. But, uh, you know, I think I'm right on that. The third point I'd like to make, and this has already been touched upon by Meg, and this is what you might call the cultural factor in our relationship with India. And I think this is hugely important. Um, I remember I've been doing some work recently on, you know, I hate this expression, soft power, but it's being used all the time uh, because I think it's very misleading in some respects. But I've been doing some work on Indonesia on, in this respect, and I read uh, Meg's, or I glanced through Meg's book on India, and I noticed that I'd given her an interview about three or four years ago where I mentioned that of the five bilateral issues with which I had to deal and which caused me the most angst in India. Three were to do with race. Uh, and I'll let you know, I'll just run through them. The two overriding ones, the security issues that were always on the agenda, were uranium and the perception India at that time, uh, which is a little bit at variance with what I said about the United States, but the perception at that time that we were tilting too much towards China. That's changed since then, but that's uh, you know, a view that they held quite strongly, and it was because of certain things that happened. Uh, our approach on the quadrilateral dialogue, uh, which I think a lot of you will be familiar, but, but that was nagging at them, and I was constantly asked about that. The three other areas were uh, to do with what you might call culture, race, call it what you will. The first was the students' crisis. Uh, which clearly had a racist element in it. Whatever uh, the government back here said, it was uh, ridiculous to argue that there wasn't a racist factor in it. You could argue that it wasn't the principal factor, but it was idiotic to suggest that it wasn't when somebody was being kicked in the street and being uh, called abusive names to do with his uh, ethnic background. You know, that's, that's nuts to try and pretend that. Um, the second issue was the Hanif affair which, uh, you know, loomed very large for a few weeks. And the fact that we were at fault, I think, was, uh, was evidenced very much by the fact that he got about $1.5 million worth of damages out of it. Uh, the images of that were appalling in India, let me assure you. Uh, the picture, which were in every newspaper for about a week, the picture of this unfortunate man in the back of a van. It looked like something uh, out of Iraq or, I um, mean, it was appalling. Uh, and I remember uh, Aaron Jaitley, who was now effectively the Deputy Prime Minister and was a former Attorney General, came, came up to me and he said, look, 
you know, I haven't said anything on this because I've assumed that you, uh, being uh, a country which believes in the rule of law, uh, knows what you're doing on this issue. Uh, but, you know, I can't really avoid saying something for very much longer. Um, and the third issue, which was uh, a much more uh, haphazard and minor affair, but it certainly, you know, got me two calls from a Prime Minister, and that's only happened three times in my career. Once was during Timor, the other time was this occasion, the other time was during the Bom Mumbai attacks, was when uh, Harbhajan Singh uh, called Simons, uh, and this is disputed, either a monkey or Teddy Marquis, which is not polite uh, in Indian uh, Hindi uh, language. It's actually a lot ruder than calling somebody a monkey, but because of the racist elements, this uh, you know became uh, became a factor. And uh, you know, I think really looking back on it, and certainly at the time, I think uh, both sides handled that with considerable lack of skill. But the fact was, it was again this race issue, this image issue. Now what I'm saying really here is uh, I think we moved away from all that. We certainly moved away from the students' crisis. But these issues are always there and they're a problem and they can be very difficult with India and they can be very difficult for us in other parts of Southeast Asia as well. Um, in, in, sorry, in parts of Southeast Asia, not just the South Asia. And we're not the only ones who've had these sorts of difficulties. The Americans, of course, have as well, and so have the Canadians at different times. We have to watch it. Okay, for the future, how do we look? I think, uh, look, essentially the economic aspect is basically on track, uh, but it's still very reliant on resources, albeit that education is coming up. We really need to keep our emphasis on scientific and technological exchange, crucial with India. We have real advantages there. We can gain a lot from it. Uh, the economic agreement, which looks as if it will, you know, some prospect of it being concluded by the end of the year, yeah, of course that's positive. People will, at the end of the day, dispute how positive it is. They, they always do with these sorts of agreements, but my sense is it's certainly a plus for Australia. It's not a minus for Australia. On the security issues, you know, I think in the end... Uh, I was um, just reflecting earlier on this, that while India likes the present disposition in security terms of Australia, uh, again, I'm not sure that at the end of the day we're necessarily looking for quite the same thing, at least under this government. Um, essentially, uh, my take on this, and I talking to Nick earlier, is that if you look at our security policy, it's really about the relationship with the United States uh, as a, uh, in, in contradistinction to, to, to the rise of Chinese power. The Indian perception, and this is a perception, again, I recently picked up in Jakarta when I was up there, is much more uh, a multipolar world. Uh, the emphasis on uh, a powerful India for the Indonesians, though they're nowhere near it, really, uh, a powerful Indonesia. Uh, different, different centres of power around the region which will in themselves attain a certain balance at the end of the day with China. Now, how that's all going to play out with India, I'm not sure. Uh, I simply don't know, but I think it is uh, uh, you know, a difference of approach which 
perhaps we need to think about. I think that's about enough from me. Thanks. Thank you, John. Mm. Uh, and so finally, Ian, the floor is yours. Thank you very much. Um, thank you also to the organisers, to La Trobe and to the Australia Injury Institute, to Diana over there for uh, organising everything, getting us here. Um, look, I'd like to fo focus on where we are now and where we might go, um, and I, highlighting a few aspects that are changing. And I'm going to step out of my uh, area of expertise and look a little bit at the area of economic relations, mainly because Modi has put uh, India's economic interests front and centre of India's diplomacy. I know he's um, when he went to go and address the new intake of Indian Foreign Service officers, that he emphasised very strongly that he wanted India's economic interests front and centre. Um, so let me just say a couple of things about other issues first. Like others, I agree that the public relationship, at least at the level of popular perceptions, is, I think, improving. And that's partly because of some really good concerted public diplomacy on both sides. It's also, I think, due partly to the beneficial effects of Indian immigration into Australia and also to the way in which Australia has opened up its education market, education providers to Indian students. And, uh, and those people-to-people -people connections are, I think, improving perceptions on both sides. Now, of course, there are risks, and we've, we've talked about some of the things that have happened in the past. Uh, it would only take another spate of attacks on uh, migrants or students who do, of course, work in uh, occupations where they're more prone to, be, to have violence inflicted upon them. And, uh, uh, of course, there is an element of... There is a racist element in Australian society that focuses attention on, on Indians in particular. I've actually witnessed two racist incidents myself in, uh, in Brisbane. Um, and it doesn't take much also to dredge up old tropes about white Australia or furfies about Australia's supposed preference for white immigrants over others. Uh, and that's, of course, in the Indian newspapers, sometimes been shown by the uh, supposed openness to white South African migrants as opposed to other migrants into Australia. So it doesn't take a lot to, to make those popular perceptions worse. But I think that when it comes to Australian perceptions of India, in particular, Modi's visit in August of 2014 clearly raised his and India's stocks in, in Australian public perceptions. The Pew poll that came out uh, about a week ago of Asia-Pacific's publics found that 58% of Australians viewed India in, in a favourable light. Uh, they liked Japan and Korea a bit more uh, and China a bit less. But that, this is uh, very much in line with improving Australian public perceptions of India uh, that we've seen in a series of different polls over the last 10 years or so. Australians also viewed Modi himself in a favourable light, and I think that's personally interesting. I remember going and being interviewed in the media a few years ago before Modi's rise to power, and uh, the journalists there would, could only ask me about Gujarat 2002 and so on. Uh, now those issues are hardly discussed, in this country at least. So Australians also view Modi in a favourable light. Indeed, they were the second most enthusiastic after the Vietnamese about Modi amongst Asian Pacific publics posed uh, polled with 51% uh, expressing confidence in Modi to, quote, do the right thing in world affairs, uh, compared with 47% expressing favourable views about Xi Jinping or 60%, sorry, about Abe Shinzo. There was actually a gender split, which was quite interesting. Women don't find Modi's and his 56-inch chest as appealing as men. Uh, they, there's a big marked difference between male and female perceptions of Modi in Australia, which is interesting. Now, when it comes to state-to-state to state relations, I think we've seen some progress. 
Australia's defence diplomacy um, has been pretty successful, I think, in engaging the Indian security establishment on maritime issues, obviously, but also on counter-terrorism and intelligence sharing. And we've seen the first bilateral joint naval exercise occurring this month. We've seen discussions about counter-radicalisation policies, amongst other things, and the groundwork laid for some defence technology transfer, a sales and transfer into the Indian market. And economically, too, there's been progress, but work's going to have to be done to move the relationship forward and to maintain momentum. So we've already heard bilateral trade sitting at 15 or so billion dollars. And whilst it tripled between 2003 and 2013, it's a bit lower than what it was in 2010-11, when it was close to about 20 billion. And of that 15 billion, 5 billion is coal, about 2 billion is education, and then there's everything else after that, as John's already pointed out. The, the investment relationship um, sits about this bilateral investment is about two is about twenty billion, but it's actually slightly tilted in Australia's favour. There's more Indian money coming here than there is going in the other direction. Now, when Modi visited Canberra in August last year, he pledged to see an Australia-India comprehensive economic cooperation agreement, basically a free trade agreement, done by the end of 2015. I think it's fair to say that uh, that deal's unlikely to be done by the, in the next four months, although I'm happy to be contradicted by people in the room who know better. As Amitendu Pallet at National University of Singapore recently noted, all the FTAs India has under negotiation are progressing more slowly than we might have hoped them to progress. And Pallet argues that the reason for this is because of some ingrained scepticism about liberalisation within the Indian establishment. Um, now, while many in heralded Modi's election as a victory for an agenda of economic liberalisation, it can be argued that Modi is actually more pro-business than he is pro-markets, and there is a distinction between those two things. Um, he's using executive power to promote the interests of Indian businesses, including some to, which he's, to whom he's close, like the Adani Group, for example, and he's wooing certain multinationals to come into, into India. And rather than uh, embarking upon a, an extensive reform agenda... Now, there are good reasons for why he hasn't embarked on that reform agenda, partly because he doesn't control the upper house and partly because uh, a lot of these powers and responsibilities lie with the states and not with the central government in India. But nevertheless, we've seen slow progress on reform, reforming tariffs, taxes, labour laws, land acquisition, environmental regulation, so on and so forth, to create an equal playing field, which we would expect if we were seeing liberalisation rather than a pro-business policy. Um, Make in India, one of Modi's, uh, uh, Modi's signature policies, illustrates some of the, the good points and bad points of this approach. Make in India is about aggressively promoting foreign direct investment for manufacturing in India in particular, with the promise that it will be facilitated by the creation of special economic zones, for example, and other enticements being offered. But at present, it's, it's hamstrung. Pallets and others think that uh, make in India will not succeed uh, in the way that Modi thinks it will, primarily because manufacturing today depends upon transnational production chains, and transnational production chains require low tariffs. Uh, it's going to be hard to move not just raw materials into India, but also the components that you need for various different things, including mobile phones and so on which means that making in India is likely to remain unattractive for some time, except for those that want to establish loss leaders in the country to gain a foothold in the market in the hope that liberalisation is going to come at some point. Now, I think it's very much in Australia's interests. As a society, whose wealth has come from open markets, from trade, first of wool and grain, and now of resources and services, to try and change the situation. 
Um, Australia needs to work with India to convince a still very sceptical political and bureaucratic elite, which remains wedded to the degree to the idea of fostering self-sufficiency, a degree of self-sufficiency as a means of economic development. It needs to convince this still sceptical political and bureaucratic elite about the benefits of free trade and free flows of investment. Uh, for all Modi's talk about globalisation, that scepticism is really very deeply entrenched in New Delhi and elsewhere. India's application to become a member of APEC uh, might well provide the right opportunity to do this, and certainly the Americans seem to think that it is the right opportunity to start engaging India on liberalisation. The payoffs for engagement could be potentially great. Remember that India is a major obstacle to concluding the Doha round of global trade talks for good and bad reasons, and so in India, more persuaded about the benefits of markets and liberalisation would be a boon for the world, not just for Australia. And Australia has other things to do in areas of mutual interest. Here's one example. Over the past decade, India has been quietly become a joiner of regional organisations where it was once a sceptic. The old argument was that multilateralism was fine at the UN level, but that regional organisations created blocks and alliances and created tensions. Today, however, India is at the centre of a series of organisations. Uh, the South Asian Association for Regional Cooperation, which is Nick's favourite uh, regional institution, uh, a dialogue partner of the ASEAN Regional Forum, a member of the East Asian Summit, in, they're in the BRICS grouping, they're a member of the Indian Ocean Regional Association, which India and Australia have collaborated to, re to revivify, they're a partner in the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, a candidate member not just of the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership led by ASEAN, but also APEC, and of course they are applying for membership of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization as well. So this is enthusiastic joining over a decade. And while India has been a very good joiner, it hasn't been actually a very good or very uh, promising entrepreneurial member of these groupings, lacking a clear agenda for change and reform in these institutions. Uh, this was evident, I think, when India sat on the UN Security Council in a non-permanent seat, but it's also been evident in other forums too. So here again, there are opportunities for creative engagement in framing reform agendas for global institutions, institutions that need to be reformed if they're to reflect the power distributions and the contested ideas that we have in the region and also in the global order more, more broadly. These are all areas in which patient diplomacy, by good diplomats, as Australia has, might help to build a much better and robust relationship that's grounded in mutual interests and also in shared values. Thank you. Thank you, Ian. Um, we now have uh, at least 40 minutes for discussion, que uh, questions and comments, and we've had a, a really rich uh, elaboration of the relationship from its early days and the complexities of race and culture to looking forward about multilateral collaboration and everything in between. And, and John's raised, raised the interesting spectre that over the long run, Australia and India may not in fact share similar grand geopolitical um, or do, do not have hopes for the same kind of grand geopolitical future as one might anticipate. So if you could just raise your hand to indicate you'd like to ask a question or comment, could you keep it short and sharp, but also introduce yourself just so that we know um, from where you are speaking, so to, so to speak. Um, yes, just a moment. If you could just wait, we've got a microphone. Um, if you could just wait till it makes its way to you. Thank you. I'm Raj Satija from Australia India United Centre. And we do some exhibitions on Australia India relations and connections. 
I got a question to John in relation to the 1986 visit of Prime Minister Rajiv Gandhi. I understand Bob Hawke was the Indian Prime Minister, uh, Australian Prime Minister at that time. Did that visit achieve anything significant? And it has never been mentioned anywhere in the history. We have talked about uh, 2006 John Howard's visit to India, but how about uh, Rajiv Gandhi's visit? Did it achieve anything significant? John, I'll also ask Meg to comment on that as well because she's got, although she has some thoughts on this. So, John, uh, look, I go Meg first because I, I'm, I'm a bit perplexed. I'm trying to think. <laughs> well, it, it was it was a bit that received a lot of um, short term, but but nevertheless intensive interest in the Australian media. Um, there was a lot of talk that Bob Hawke and Rajiv Gandhi had established a friendship and uh, a close friendship uh, and that and they'd done that through the Commonwealth because they'd met at Commonwealth meetings and they joined together to form a group to try and bring about work towards the end of apartheid and they'd come together on that issue. There was a lot of talk in the air of economic changes following Rajiv Gandhi's 1986 visit, but I think you're probably, well, the assumption underlying your question is correct, that it probably, the energy went as fast as it appeared. It sort of was a puff of smoke. And Bob Hawke did return that visit in 1989. He went uh, to India and, uh, and there was still a lot of talk about the friendship between Rajiv Gandhi. But, of course, Rajiv Gandhi was out of power a few months later, and um, so it, it didn't go anywhere. There wasn't enough economic clout. There was a lot of economic talk about the connection then, but there was no economic follow-through to make it all happen. Did you want anything? Yeah, look, uh, the impression I got was it was a very high-profile visit at the time, but... It did run out of steam. Uh, the main, uh, my main memory of it was that throughout my time in India and throughout Peter Varghese's time, and no doubt throughout the time of uh, our predecessors, everybody used that as the uh, period, or as the time when the last visit had occurred. And every year, it was 23 years since the last visit of an Indian Prime Minister, 24 years since the last visit of an Indian Prime Minister. And it threw into relief, frankly, the fact that uh, a huge gap occurred between Rajiv Gandhi's visit and Modi's visit. That happily has been rectified, but it was, uh, it was a real problem. It was beginning to be a real problem in the relationship. Great. Now we've got a little queue forming, so first here and then there. I am Ravichandran Raghupati. I'm doing international business at Murdoch University, Western Australia, Perth. I especially come today here, um, just uh, Dr. McGurry mentioned that racism is a, always the racism is the sensitive issue, but in particular in India, the student problems, I don't know that, I just want to know that it's all about the behavior problem. Either the agent, recruiting the agent from India to students, or the, any university, they fail to address how to behave in Australia when you come as a student here. And they are just focusing only on ELTS test and not other issues. Like if the students come here, 20 hours they can work legally. But the same time the students must aware of it that law of the land, work hour, fair work, ambassman, 
award badges and these are all the focus better to tell the students so that when they migrate to australia to study as a student they know all these complex issues that will be a better understanding so that that uh, the student issue will be the very smooth and what do you think about that Oh, look, I'm sorry, yeah, so, I didn't... Yeah, yeah. yeah. so the, the question is more about, the, if I understand this right, the, about some of the problems relate essentially to Indian students not being culturally or educationally in the right place to make the most of their time in Australia. Is that... get it right? I think, yeah. Um, I actually might see if Ian might want to say something, because Ian and I work in universities, so yeah, we deal with this on a daily you'd, basis. You'd John be able to do it too, done. Nick. Um, if you want to say something, then I, then I can weigh in. I think we could, I mean, we could spend an entire afternoon or indeed week or probably a year investigating this, this particular question. I mean, clearly there are, you know, very different expectations. The other thing that we're talking is we're talking about very different cohorts of students. So what we've got, are, you know, sometimes we've got elite people coming in from elite Indian institutions wanting to do PhDs. And then we've got all the way down to people coming and doing uh, courses in vocational, uh, sometimes with private providers and so on. So there's not one kind of co coherent group of students and they're also coming from very different locations and from de very different class groups with very different expectations and very different kind of behavioural norms. So it's very hard to generalise about the Indian student population that are coming in. Uh, and I was actually recently in New Zealand and we were talking about the same, same thing there as well, where there are these different kinds of cohorts, each of them with different expectations and different needs and uh, getting very different experiences of being in Australia. Um, so it's very hard to generalise. Yeah, I, I just add one really quick thing, which is Australian universities have approached Asia generally, not just India, and this is true of China as well, in a very opportunistic and at times quite mercantile approach, which is to say we need warm bodies to come to our universities and we are prepared to look, overlook certain things that we might otherwise not do. Um, no one will admit this in public, that this is what's going on, but the interests are pushing the system and every university is doing it in ways that often mean that, at, at, and as Ian says, you've got this huge spectrum of students. Some of the students are absolutely you know, prepared, engaged, and get the most out of their time to others who come and are drowning from the moment they arrive to the moment they leave. And that surely exacerbates um, some of the difficulties, but it is a very big spectrum of students whose experiences are, are quite varied. All right, next, um, the gentleman just in the back. Sorry, no, the one in just in front um, with the glasses there. Um, thank you for that. It's Mark Jones from one of the students from ANU. Um, you've all spoken about the importance of people-to-people -people links and emphasised a major plank of that is our uh, student export market. But it's very difficult to identify policies and programs where we're taking Australian students back to India. It seems an unvery, very unbalanced relationship, and I was wondering if the panel could comment about that lack of balance in the relationship. I'm going to channel my inner Julie Bishop and say, yes. new Colombo plan. Um, and whatever you think of whatever the current government's doing, uh, it is new money on the table, large, large amounts of it, to encourage universities to get Australian students to spend more time in Asia, but it is a big, a big issue. Did anyone else want to? I mean, that's that's something, but it's we've got we've got a mountain to climb on that one. So yeah. I think again, you know, you've, there's there's multiple issues here. One of them is the strength of the higher education sector in India itself, and the and the kind of quality of product that you would give, be giving an Australian student. Um, it, 
you know, there are very few Australian institutions in the top 500 institutions, sorry, very few Indian institutions in the top 500 institutions in the world, and students go on prestige, whether they come here or they go there, uh, and it's hard to persuade them that they should go to um, Rajasthan rather than going to Tokyo. So there's, there's that. But there's all sorts of other issues too around safety, around the provision of accommodation, around the responsibilities we have for students, and so on, and so on, and so on. And we just also, we don't see enough Australian students going overseas. And then last but not least, given the way that the higher education sector is funded in Australia, there is not a lot of money for domestic students to go and do things overseas. There's, you know, Australian universities are overwhelmingly dependent upon bringing international students into Australia to cross-subsidise research, but also to cross-subsidise domestic students who we just don't get enough money for. There, there is also a regulatory issue, which is a small boring point, but it's important, which is the, the best way to get students to move is exchange. So our students go there and their students come here and they don't have to dip their hands in their pockets for fees. Indian universities do not recognise any credit earned outside of India at all under any circumstances. And this is something I know at the recent mission that uh, Minister Pine led that has been a subject of intense, I mean, I think very good lobbying by the government to try to get some shift on that. I'm not sure where it's at. There might be some people in the audience who might be able to share that um, if there's been movement on it. But that is a real stumbling block. Until that can happen, it will become very, it will continue to be a real challenge absent new Colombo plan funding. All right, um, the next one is right there, the man in the um, navy blue jacket right in front of, right behind you is the microphone. Fantastic, thanks. Thanks very much. Uh, Jeremy Hurd is my name. I, I was in the Foreign Service for many years, um, and I've written a book about Sir James Plimsoll, which was published this year, who was one of our commissioners. <laughs> Thanks very much, Meg. I, I, I have just a few things to say, but I do say them with great trepidation because I thought it was excellent what I brought here today. And, uh, you know, with what you say, I find it very hard to disagree, but... There are just one or two things, if I may, as I say, with great trepidation, say. Australia and India, and we've talked for all this time, and I can only hear, I think, once the mention of the word C-R-I-C-K-E-T. I mean, that is absolutely basic to these two countries. It is something that we've been involved with, with each other for a very, very long time, and I don't know whether there's been any academic study of the importance of this, but it seems to me to be a subject that would be full of possibilities for trade as well as the cultural side, perhaps. I don't know, but it's, it's absolutely basic. And I, 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 I do think that it, you, you can't, when you look at this subject, uh, neglect it, as it were. Um, Meg, you mentioned about Menzies, and I, I can't disagree with anything you said about him, but... I do think we ought to remember that he had a foreign minister, Minister for External Affairs, was then, uh, one of our longest serving, mm. who was governor of Bengal, mm. and who, for all his shortcomings, which there were many, the one thing he was really good at was mm. personal contact. Mm. And he really made a big effort to get in touch with Indians on, on a personal basis. And he used to spend months overseas um, in his job. Nobody seemed to quarrel in those days with that. Um, and I, I, the whole question of our relationship with the United States, which comes up when we consider any other country in the world, um, again, it, it's a very much disputed subject. But 
I think that... Um, what about the other side of it? I mean, they were suspicious of us in, in your sort of historical uh, treatment because of our relationship with the United States. I think Australian governments over many years were very suspicious of India because of its relationship with the Soviet Union, of course. And I mean, you know, it, it is a two-way thing. And um, so, um, you know, that, that's just a few thoughts. But uh, thank you very much indeed because it's been terrific. Great. I might just get John, John to talk about cricket. Look, I'll just... In, in a political uh, sense. I'll, I'll, just, I'll just make... <laughs> and then Meg on Menzies. I'll just make three very short points. First of all, just coming back to the students' issue. There is a problem getting Australian students to go to India, China or Indonesia. And there are a couple of reasons for that. One is, if you're going to go to one of those countries, most students, unless they're really very interested in the academic aspects of those countries, tend to be looking at what the, how it will help their employment prospects when they get back to university. They go up for shorter periods. The second aspect is, um, you know, students are one way or another attracted by what the place is like to live in. That is why uh, the second most attractive area or destination for Australian students is Latin America. The language is easy. Uh, relatively easy, and there's some very congenial cities in which to live, which are not too different a place to what they're used to in Australia, and, and those factors, I think, count. So all those three, those three big countries which are important to us, we have the same difficulties everywhere, and accommodation, all these factors play a part. Cricket, look, uh, I take what you, you say, Jeremy, I, and I, I'm, you know, I found myself for five years in the unpopular position of, of telling people who came in you know, all the time and said, look, the answer to the relationship is cricket. And yes, it is. And, but my response is, look, cricket is actually taking place anyway. It's a huge asset in terms of people-to-people -people perceptions throughout the population in each country. But there is not a lot that governments can really add to that. They can a certain amount, but you know, there's so much going on anyway. Part of the problem that I've always found in India is to try and get Indians to focus on the things that focus on the fact that there are other things in Australia or other things that we do beyond being, uh, you know, uh, basically their perception, a European country uh, which has a history on race on the one hand and the second being extremely good at cricket. Um, we're not particularly thought of in terms of being good at science and technology. We're not particularly we thought not thought of as being particularly good as manufacturers. All these things. So you know, I'd say cricket's there, but uh, it's frankly everybody's idea. And uh, say, Jeremy, I know where you're coming from, but it's you know that that comes up, that that issue comes up all the time, and it's really the other side of the relationship which I think we have to concentrate on. Megan Menzies. I, I, I didn't have long enough to go into it, Jeremy, and I really contemplated whether to put my little crack at Menzies in or not, and I left it in in the end. And had I had longer, I would have actually said, which I actually believe, that Richard Casey was a very good foreign minister. He was there from 51 to 60. He worked extremely hard in the region. He did develop very good relationships with, with Asian leaders, leaders around the world, but from my interest is, was Asia. 
Um, he got on very well with Indian leaders, no, no question at all. And before him, you can attribute the Colombo plan to Percy Spender with some degree of certainty. Um, my beef is with Menzies himself. I, I, I don't for a minute think that he didn't have a good team around him. And I also think that John McEwen um, and the 1957 uh, Treaty of Commerce, um, that was John McEwen's, it wasn't Menzies. But Menzies, I mean, yes, it's true. Menzies was Prime Minister. He has to be able to say, he has to take credit for what his ministers were doing. But my own very strongly held position is it was not Menzies himself, that he didn't advance Australia's... Uh, he didn't ha I don't believe he had an Asia policy that was anything other than a Cold War policy. I, I, and I just kept reading this from, uh, you, you know, the diplomats of the time, James Plimsoll included. I, I've read all their memoirs and their oral histories, and they were not centre-left people, left people. They were, their, their politics was was probably conservative. They, they liked Menzies a lot, but to a person they all said, Menzies was wonderful to work for, da, da, da. However, he was not interested in Asia. But I, I, I do not for one minute think that there was any, that any criticism can be levelled at Casey. If I can just throw in one more point yeah. on that, Nick. One of the arguments about Casey was that Menzies gave Casey his head in Asia. Go and do what you like. I've got also lots of uh, um, archival comments of what Menzies said about Casey, particularly to Walter Crocker in India in 1959. <coughs> Terrible things he said. And they basically said Casey can do what he likes in Asia because Menzies didn't really care what he did. Menzies' interest was the Commonwealth and the United States Alliance and securing defence coordination agreements with the great and powerful friends in Asia. So... Yeah, that's kind of a bit of a pet right. topic. Uh, next one is here. <laughs> uh, we'll get you. Hello, good afternoon. My name is Deepak Raj Gupta from Australia India Business Council. Um, as we already discussed, uh, there has been uh, uh, political and government-to-government -government ties have really flourished in recent years, and we, we have seen that. And uh, we have seen earlier this year, there was the largest uh, business continent, contingent was taken by um, uh, Andrew Robb. But uh, after all those things, it uh, looks like still we are talking a lot about past, about curries, cricket, Bollywood and all, but not really concentrating on business. Uh, there's been a lot of visits, uh, ministerial visits, both sides, but it looks like the business that stink, that, you know, that uh, we really mean to do business is not happening as we've seen decline of the uh, true trade from 22 billions to 15 billions now as compared to China, 160 billion. <laughs> Is there something lacking the way we are thinking or we are not really thinking the way we really uh, want to do business with India? Okay, I mean, so if we yeah. can answer this one, yeah. <laughs> then, then we can, we can um, feel like we've achieved our, uh, our KPIs. Um, any one of the panel, I mean, Ian, you, you spoke on this most directly. I mean, it is, and it is the sort of big puzzle, is there more to this economic relationship than, than resources, as John said? Look, I think... Um, so, you know, clearly this government and the last government did a lot to take business groups, business leaders, also vice-chancellors and others over to India to introduce them to the government, to meet other businesses and so on and so forth. Um, and so there has been, a, you know, a considerable government effort on that part. 
I think the when you talk to um, when you talk at the level as I've done to some say you know Queensland MPs who are talking to their constituents, they say that uh, there's still this perception that the ease of doing business it's not easy to do business in India, and they look at those indexes about ease of doing business and so on, and they see how far down India is, and they start to worry. I think in a way though. Part of the reason for that is that, you know, that Australian businesses have had it pretty good. They've had access to lots of different markets. Uh, some of those markets have been extremely lucrative. And they haven't had to go for some of the more difficult uh, kind of options. But now, with China slowing down and so on, we might now see, you know, some sort of move to try and engage in, in, in India. Concluding the um, economic partnership would clearly help. I think, just to signal that there was real commitment on both sides to, to, to do something. And then, I mean, the last thing here is that India itself has many suitors. So when, when Australia went to China early on, um, it had its foot in the door and, it was, and China saw a country that it was a Western country with which it could, could learn how to do business with the West and could learn how to engage. And, and a, a country that didn't really matter that if it, ups, if it upset um, it's not like the United States or the Europeans and, and so on. So Australia had kind of prime mover advantage there. Uh, that's not the case in India, where there are Europeans, there are Chinese, there are Africans, there are Japanese, there's everyone trying to get attention. And so it's much harder then to get your own message heard. And I think that's also probably putting some people off. Mm, there was AII hosted uh, Sadhanan Dume to give a, who's a conservative columnist, regularly writes a column in the Wall Street Journal. Um, based at the American Enterprise Institute, and he said, I thought it was a really telling point, which is if Modi can't deliver economic reform at home, all of the foreign policy things he's trying to achieve are going to fall flat on their face. And I think that's actually at the heart of this issue, is that there's so much to do at home economically um, that, that it's putting Australian business off. So I've just got to keep going. We've got, got a long... Yep. Perfect. <laughs> Product placement, done. Tick. Um, Alan, so at the front, uh, Alan Gingell's next. Oh, Thanks. Uh, Alan Gingell from the Crawford School at the ANU. I just wondered if uh, uh, Ian and perhaps Meg would like to comment on John's uh, scepticism, or maybe it wasn't scepticism, but questioning about the um, long-term outlook for strategic alignment between uh, Australia and uh, India. John's uh, um, belief that maybe uh, maybe India's views of the region and Australia's were in the end going to be uh, more different than we expected. Do you understand? Well, the future is not sort of my area, but <laughs> I'm a good historian. Or may, well, I'm a historian. But um, I do think it's interesting that uh, with the current government in Australia at the moment, there's clearly our Prime Minister has an interest in Japan and in India and this sort of concept of democracies notion. I don't know about concept of democracies, but some alignment between democracies and all with the eye on China. But in many um, roundtable meetings I've had with very, very senior Indian foreign policy people, some retired, some not, they're not nearly, they don't go nearly as far as that, as, as committing, I don't know whether, I think that's what John was saying, that their commitment to a long-term sort of let's all the, let's get Japan, Australia and India and bring in the United States and we'll all be one happy family and we'll contain China somehow. 
you don't see. I, I don't hear anything like. I mean, I think it's the. I think it's the subtext, but I don't think it's explicit. And um, but but Ian, this is Ian's area more in terms of where the strategic alignments are. So. Look, I think that you know, I mean, India is in a very difficult, different predicament to to Australia. Its neighbourhood is much more challenging. Uh, it's neighbouring with China. It's got Pakistan there as well, causing multiple problems to India. So it's in a much more difficult situation. But at the same time, I think you know, just like many other countries in the region, it's hedging. Um, it's trying to hedge its bets against the U.S. decline, which I think is becoming less likely as a possibility against the possibility that China becomes less, much less benign in the region. Um, I detect, you know, when I go and talk to some of the Indian foreign policy and strategic people, they, they're quite fearful of China economically and militarily, but they're also acknowledged that China is, th is three times larger in terms of its economy. It's military budgets four times larger. So it'll take a hundred years before, as one, one commentator said to me, it'll take a hundred years before India could really stand up to China. And so it's got to focus on economic development first. I think though that there is a nostalgia, I would regard it as a nostalgia for a kind of multipolar order that still lingers. There's still an attachment to this concept of strategic autonomy and having independence of, uh, in, in policy making. I think that's still really important. And that's now playing out in a slightly different way. Modi has not mentioned strategic autonomy as a phrase, to my knowledge, during his prime ministership, but he is talking about multi-directional foreign policy. And on the other hand, you've got people like Shashi Tharoor talking about multi-alignment and so on. So India is now operating a much more, well, I would regard it as sort of promiscuous foreign policy, engaging with lots of different partners for lots of different things, including with the Chinese, the Russians, the West, and so on. Uh, and basically because they know that their predicament is, is not strong. John, did you want to come in? Yeah, just look, want to add something on Modi and his foreign policy. Um, look... Right throughout the Gandhi-Nehru dynasty, there have been serious issues with China to do with the border. That goes right back to the war, 62 war. And there has developed in that foreign policy or security establishment in India a strong antipathy towards China. And you find that everywhere. Okay. Modi comes to power. Modi's a nationalist. There's no question about that. Very strong nationalist perceptions, including uh, in terms of India's relationship with China. But there have been certain indications in the way he's dealt with China that uh, you know he's open to accommodation. And um, I, I, I'm just guessing here, but if there is anybody in India who is capable of reaching some sort of accommodation with China. This is not an alliance, it's not the Nixon thing, but it's something very different to existing Chinese, Indian policy towards China. It's Modi. And it's Modi because he has the political strength. He has impeccable nationalist credentials. And it would be very interesting to see what would happen if, you know, when he's been a little bit longer in power, he actually makes a major... Uh, step towards China. I wouldn't be personally surprised. There will be those who would disagree with that view. But I think it's something that you actually need to watch for because it would change a lot in the region. All right. We're, we've got about 15 minutes left and I've got a list of about five or six people. So we've got one here, then here, <laughs> one here, here, there, there, and then oh, you're, you're back. This is like running an auction or something. So, <laughs> right, please go ahead and then Fine. Go. Okay, I'll be quick. 
Uh, my name's McComas, I'm from the ANU. I'm largely responsible for getting uh, ANU language students to India and I have largely failed in that effort. We've done very well with getting students into China and Indonesia, Japan also. Our main problems with getting language students into India is finding a partner institution where our students will be A, personally secure, and B, uh, professionally taught. We find the pedagogy is an ongoing problem. Now, when we went to the uh, Australian High Commission in New Delhi for help, where they have uh, an education promotion person, that person regretted that they would be unable to help us because they are only interested in getting Indian students into Australia. We really need somebody on the ground in India who can help us place our students there and I think the High Commission is the place for that to happen. Thank you. I think that's probably a statement. Um, that was a statement. Yeah, no, and I think it is. I mean, a, 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 speaking from my own perspective as a university, which one of our roles is to get more, more Latrobe students spending more time, particularly semesters, in the region. It's, you know, having good partnerships, good relationships is, is tricky and it's hard. But it would be consistent with this government's policy hmm. to assist you because it's really the hmm. same endeavour as the new Colombo plan uh, is intended to aim at. And I guess to, to, to add, I mean, to, to, to echo John's point, the moment the new Colombo plan money is new money and it's good and in no way being critical of it, um, but universities are all spending it in very non-strategic ways, which is just we've got to get it, we've got to do it quickly and just get it out the door. Whereas what we need is a more systematic, institutionalised way of saying, help us build partnerships, quality partnerships, to then make that cultural change to get our students going there. Sorry. I just wanted to, probably it's a bit of a statement rather than anything else. Uh, Indian people have been doing business for thousands of years, but their concentration has been somewhere else. I'm from Fiji, incidentally, so I'm a bit of a bystander, but I, with interest. Now, the way I see it is this. Why, a question was asked, why aren't we doing as much trade with India? Uh, the problem is this that why don't we understand the psyche of the Indian businessman? That's perhaps the most crucial thing. You know, they say that the only true Englishman to be found today is walking on the streets of Calcutta, as Malcolm Margaret said. But perhaps we need to look at it from a different way. If we've listened to what Shashi Sarur said recently about uh, making claims back to India, there are undertones, undertones that we do not understand. Today we spoke about India's association more with US, but really speaking, Britain is doing much better with India than we are. The question is why? Because India has had a lot of association with, uh, with Britain and Australia is seen as an offshoot of that. We need to make make our independence, Australia needs to make its independence more shown as that we are doing our own business. We are not hanging on to somebody else's uh, strings, etc. So that there we are, that's my little bit, and I'm off with my lunch. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Did, Ian, did you want to step in? Or anyone want to comment on this? The comparison with the UK is a really interesting one. I mean, I think the answers lie in having the established connections of post-imperial connections, but also an established diaspora. 
um, that has been in place in the UK for a long period of time and that is willing to do business back into. Now, in, of course, Australia has a long-standing Indian diaspora. Uh, people who were brought to Queensland and northern New South Wales to cut, cut cane at the same time as people were talk, taken to Fiji. Uh, but it's a very small diaspora. Uh, it's a mainly Sikh diaspora, and it hasn't been politically influential in any significant way uh, outside of Coffs Harbour and Woolgooga and a couple of other places. <laughs> It's a legacy, in other words, of the white Australia policy. More Indians in the 50s, you have more trade now. That's my simplistic thesis. Or reverse attitude, Indian attitudes to Australians as second-rate profit. Yeah. I wouldn't call it racist, but it's something. Yeah. All right, gentlemen there in the glasses. Thank you. Um, David Lang from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. Um, we've noticed, and the panellists have, have commented, that the energy and enthusiasm really exists at the prime ministerial level um, between Abbott and Modi. Um, but how do we imbue that within the government and bureaucracy so that these gains that we have in, in these prime ministerships uh, are taken forward and contribute to the relationship long term? Um, I think there's a, perhaps a disconnect between what we see, uh, what Modi sees and what his bureaucracy sees that they can support. Um, the one example that comes to mind is the Quad, which was uh, spoken about by Kevin Andrews last week in Delhi uh, and has been raised by Modi twice with his, in his meetings with Abbott and with Obama. So um, while Modi might be into the minilateralism um, and, and that sort of contribution to regional rules-based order, uh, is the bureaucracy, and what can Australia do to um, foster greater understanding and, and progress, really, in the bureaucracy? Thank you. Might actually get everyone to have, have some thought, just a quick response to that, because in many respects, that's the, that's the theme of Meg's book, is this punctuated high points of bilateral you know, yeah. good, good I wish, times I wish building. I, had an, then, I wish we had an answer. It's David, is it? Yeah. yeah. To what you're saying. That, to me, was the frustration of, from my research, which was 70 years from 1944 to 2014, was this extraordinary energy um, uh, from time to time at the, at the uh, bureaucratic level. In uh, There were some... Well, actually, it's too much detail. But there, there was a lot of energy going on, particularly in New Delhi with the high commissions in New Delhi. And every now and again, we'd have bursts of prime ministerial enthusiasm. Unfortunately, at the time of our biggest burst during the, the Hawke, Keating and Evans years, that wasn't to India. And that, I think, has not been properly explored, that that was sort of a hiatus in... in well, not really a hiatus, but it was, it was a time that that things became stagnant and declining with India because all of the Australian government's energy was going... Into an Asia Pacific that didn't include India. I don't. Know, I, I don't know the answer to your problem. I don't know whether John or Ian does. I but okay. I know the answer. But I we'll go for it. <laughs> Look, uh, first point. You talk to any Indian about their bureaucracy, and you will always get, uh, you know, sighs, concerns, uh, eyes will roll up into the head. And it's, you know, but it's also extremely bureaucratic, and that's essentially because uh, the British system has been inherited, but it hasn't changed in 70 or 80 years. That's, that's a very general comment, but it is, everybody will tell you, it's a, it's a very difficult process to go through uh, the Indian bureaucracy, either federal or state. The second point to make is, at the top of the tree, the Indian bureaucracy are very, very capable and very pragmatic. It is simply the system has grown in such a way that it is uh, almost impossible to navigate. 
But if you can get to the top people, they can make decisions and they're very well-informed decisions. And, uh, and they're, very, they're, they're just some very capable people there. But the problem is, is, is what the, the, the animal as a whole is like, and it's bad. Now, look, there is, having said that, though, in dealing with any big country in trying to keep a relationship working and going, it is almost impossible to do it unless you have the bureaucratic structures right. Uh, and that is to say, systems by which you have annual talks, uh, all sorts of um, exchanges that take place. And you get those right, you, you put them in place, usually with the benefit of a prime ministerial visit, because that's about the only way you can get the bureaucratic effort to actually put these structures in place. And when, uh, you know, Indians say, or Indians and Australians say, okay, we've now got a strategic relationship, you say, well, what's that mean, you know, a strategic, you know. But, in fact, in bureaucratic parlance, it means certain things are going to happen. And that's the case with Japan, it's the case with China. You've got to do this. Now, that brings you back to the point of, you know, these uh, peaks and troughs that you get in the relationship with India. What you have to do in these long term in the relationship to maintain a sort of long term serious exchange of business between the two countries is you have to have that structure which takes you between these various uh, visits by heads of government and even foreign ministers, and uh, that's actually crucial. Sounds boring as hell, but it's crucial. And I think what happened in our relationship between roughly 2000 and, and now, is that these bureaucratic structures have been built up with a lot of effort between the two countries. And I think the fact that they exist means that we are less likely to dip seriously into troughs in the future. Ian. Yeah. I mean, just briefly, I'm not a Modi fan, but, uh, but I, you have to acknowledge what, what he's achieved. Remember, he comes into power and... People expect him not to do well in foreign policy. He has no experience, he has no knowledge, he comes from another backward caste, he's not well educated, there's lots of sneering about, about Modi, and yet he becomes a serious world player, at least in image terms, um, really early on. Remember, too, that he has brought about quite significant change within the bureaucracy. He's, he's replaced lots of department heads. He's brought in new blood. He's brought in S.J. Shankar to run the, run the MEA. Um, this, is, this is pretty significant, and it's brought about significant change, I think, uh, at least at the top levels. Now, it's going to take time to change the culture and to change the institutional setups and so on. And the one other thing is that when you talk to diplomats in New Delhi, what they tell you is that Modi has a very serious and uh, interest in public administration. Okay, in, which is he had, he, he's one of the few prime ministers who has two political science degrees. Whether he completed them or not, it's not clear. But uh, he has a the big interest in public admin. He reads about it. He knows about it. He understands about wicked problems and all this sort of stuff that bureaucrats love. And he can talk about it with with diplomats and bureaucrats. So he's probably the best positioned person to try and bring about change in those in those areas. Um, but I'm not a fan. Let's just say that. <laughs> All right, we've got we're really tight on time, so I've got. Sorry, I missed you there in the back uh, with the dark hair who's out of line of sight, and then one in the middle, and I think we'll have to call it call it time oh, there. You. So, if you could just um, keep it brief. I am Anuparna. I'm doing my PhD at AENU. Uh, 
Now, it's very heartening to know about the collaborations between Australia and India at economic level, but if we could step aside uh, from economics, uh, business, uh, there's another area I believe we could engage a lot is, you know, in terms of engaging at the level of culture, engaging at the level of literature, and this is one area we really don't talk about. Uh, and it's a serious problem because uh, one of the ways in which I think we could deal with racism and other issues is by you know, engaging uh, at the level of literature. So uh, are we really thinking about uh, you know, kind of extending our collaborations, uh, extending our dialogue? Uh, even when we are talking about cricket, we can do a lot with the cricket if we could go beyond the superficial level and talk about the colonial history and uh, you know, other associations. So are we really thinking about uh, that? Yeah, I mean, I think everyone agrees that people-to-people -people diplomacy is a good idea, but it seems to me often we're not quite sure how to do it better. Does anyone want to add Make a general comment. Look, uh, this has been tried, the, the whole Australian studies, Indian studies, but particularly Australian studies. It hasn't been very successful. And the problem with uh, concentrating on literature, you get a very small group of people uh, in Australia and a very small group of people in India who, uh, you know, talk, uh, no doubt, very fruitfully uh, in the context of their own academic interests, but it doesn't really get much further than that. I'm actually a great believer in effective public diplomacy, and we should do more of it with India. But what you really need to do is you have to get through uh, to either a medium-sized group of real decision-makers or a very large group of... Uh, people as a whole in the country, so you can, you can affect public opinion generally. But this tends to be uh, through means other than specialised areas such as high culture, I stress high culture, or uh, literary subjects or certain types of music. It's got to be broader than that. I make myself very unpopular with the cultural community in Australia when I say, say, say things like that, but that's certainly my experience. All right, very final one is in the middle. This gentleman's been quite patient. Hey, um, so my name is uh, Jason Prizzi. Um, I'm representing ISIC in Australia. Obviously, what ISIC is, like, we're an international youth-run organization that facilitates exchanges, cross-cultural cross and professional exchanges between Australia and other countries. Um, I'm just wondering, I've heard a lot about how racism and <coughs> public perception are really a barrier in the advancement of Australia-India relationship. I'm just, like, wondering, um, do you believe that, like, it would be beneficial to engage in um, cross-cultural and professional exchange to change the public perception the perception of the public between Australia and India? And uh, if so, how can universities use, like, use youth-run exchanges strategically in, um, sorry, <laughs> in um, increasing the cross-cultural and economic understanding between Australia and India? Should we be doing it? Is that your question? Uh, yes. That's yeah, the should. leading question. The leading should question. Should <laughs> yes, so universities use like, these type of exchanges strategically in like, changing the perception of Australia? Yes, I mean, it certainly should be done, but you need to do a lot of it. That's the point. Uh, but certainly, if you're getting through to future leaders or future opinion formers, uh, it's essential. Yeah. Can I just yep. put in a good word for the Australia India Institute in this sense? I mean, this is what it was designed to do, uh, was to, to engage in the sort of in dialogues about literature, culture, Bollywood movies, you know, they have Fearless Nadia series and so on. The problem, and this isn't a rent-seeking comment, it's just a comment about geography. The problem is it's based in Melbourne. 
it's not here, it's not in Brisbane, it's not in Sydney. Um, it's really difficult in Australia because Australia is fragmented. And it's very difficult in India too because, it's, because most of us, when we go and visit India, we end up in New Delhi and we talk to New Delhi elites and we don't get out to the, to the rest of the country and we don't speak to other people as well. So geography in, is, a, is an issue here. Um, and, you know, to try and get proper nation-to-nation connection requires talking beyond capital cities and talking beyond Melbourne or, or New Delhi. Yeah, and I think um, just to add to what Ian's saying, AII has been very good at particularly bringing Indians to Australia, to Melbourne. I'm from Melbourne. They're coming to Australia. The rest of it, the rest of it's a, a second place, you know, where you go after you go to Melbourne. Um, no, I, mean, I acknowledge Ian's point. Um, but... To me, the real issue is getting Australians to India uh, and to, to de-exoticise, to see India as a country, not an exotic place to go or an interesting, amazing spiritual journey that it's a place that's got strengths and weaknesses, opportunities, all of, all of the things. And I think that's, that's, a, that's a, a big shift. And as I said earlier, from a student point of view, from us trying to get our students there, it's around a real shift in mindset that this is not adventure tourism, but this is educational, it's useful, it's instrumental. Our students are very instrumental in the way they think about where they're going. And at the moment, that's a big, and that's a message, I think, as much to India as it is to ourselves and to countries, uh, to our government, is to say, to get our young people and our students to think about India as a country like any other, which, of course, is a challenge because it's not. Um, we're out of time, but um, we have... The space for for a consider well sometime after this. I'm not sure exactly when they'll kick us out, um, but before then, I just have to say a few things. First, uh, I'd like you all to join me in thanking our panelists for fantastic contributions this afternoon. Uh, as as you will all know, uh, events like this do not happen by themselves, um, and I would particularly like to extend my thanks to the Latrobe Asia team, and in particular to our administrative supremo. Diana Heatherich. Um, Diana is the spine, lungs, heart, all the vital organs combined of La Trobe Asia uh, for her tireless work in making today such a great success. So thank you, Diana. Uh, I'd also like to thank the AII, both Cog and Simone in the AII Melbourne headquarters for their contributions, uh, and of course the staff from Old Parliament House, uh, from the um, AV team and the catering for helping us out this morning. Um, I would especially like to thank our panellists who have taken time from their very packed diaries uh, to come and to participate today, and particularly to thank Meg, whose idea this was in the first place. Um, Latrobe Asia is here to help and enable people with good ideas who are linked to Latrobe and to our broader agenda uh, around our contributions with Asia. Uh, we often find out, well, I often find it very difficult to imagine what we should be doing, and it's without the suggestions and thoughts and ideas of people like Meg and those of you here we would often be stuck staring at our shoes. Um, so I'd particularly like to thank her. Um, and of course, I would like to thank you all for coming. Um, without an audience, a panel would be an existential question mark. Um, so we appreciate you being here, and particularly those of you who have asked questions. Um, we have recorded today's event and subject to the usual vagaries of technology. It will be available on our website shortly, um, which leaves me only to plug our website, um, and I'm not tracked on... My KPRs have nothing to do with website traffic. Uh, our website, which is easy to remember, latrobe.edu.au forward slash Asia, you can see everything that Latrobe does, the full range of activities from our agri-bio research on diabetes in India through to student Colombo, New Colombo Plan funded trips 
to events like this. We have a regular podcast that you can subscribe. I would highly encourage you to do so. That's on iTunes and SoundCloud. But most importantly, uh, we have lunch now available to your right or to your left, to our right. Um, thank you again, and please join me in thanking the panellists.